morning. Through sermon is going to be taken from uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. Now someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundance, abundance harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, drink. And be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Hey, uh, what's up, LMCC? It is great to be back with you all. If I haven't met you before, um, I was actually at the retreat um, back in, I believe it was March, um, together with the LMCC family, and it was such a joy. I often tell people that if I weren't a pastor of a church here in the city, I would actually be coming to this church, because this is where things are happening. And um, so I, we, my wife is actually here along with our family, and so we're delighted to be here. Very rarely do I get an opportunity to preach outside of the church that I'm part of, and so this is a great joy for me. And if you're new here, you're visiting for the first time, guess what? If I offend you somehow or if you don't like the speaker, I won't be back next week. Um, Ryan, who I believe is one of the finest preachers here in our city, will be here. And I think um, it'll be great for you to come on back and really get to know this church. I believe they're doing amazing things and it's truly a blessing throughout the city. Um, so uh, I thought kind of as we start... Um, Today, uh, one of the reasons why I decided to come was actually because Ryan has actually agreed to, um, one way to get him to go anywhere north of 14th Street is by inviting him to preach at our church. So one day, I'm going to kind of say this publicly, Ryan's going to come and preach at Hope Midtown just, just so that we can kind of get this payback thing going. But um, anyhow, um, let me pray for us as we start this morning and as we explore this text and as we kind of explore what God has for us. Um, can we pray together? Father, for some reason, you have brought us here in this space today. Um, I believe that each of us here, at least there's this small little seed of a longing for you, of something transcendent and divine, something that will speak into our realities as New Yorkers who are living in this world, wrestling with all of the tensions that surround our world, our country, our city, and even our own personal lives. Father, I pray that whatever is spoken today would really penetrate deeply into our realities, that we would be met by the spirit of the living God, and that it would change us and transform us. God, we remember kind of what's happening around the world, even in our own country, in Texas, and we just pray for your mercy um, during this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
Amen. Um, so I thought what I'd do, kind of the title of today's talk is this idea of good news for Manhattan. And it's really kind of, as, as I reflect on um, New Yorkers and New Yorkers, what are, what's a message that would be good news for us? In other words, what would be like the gospel for us? Obviously, that's found in scripture. And, um, and I, I was actually thought I'd start the sermon by talking about three different quotes that I think perfectly describe New York. Last night, we had a friend over at our place, and we were talking about why in the world do people come to New York and actually stay and settle here? And uh, it was kind of a perfect discussion that actually sets up these three quotes. Um, so I, we'll flash up the first quote here by Nora Ephron, who is the screenwriter of two classics, like When Harry Met Sally. Come on, somebody. You know that? That's Ryan's favorite movie. Uh, as well as Sleepless in Seattle. Um, that's Logan's favorite movie. And, um, but here, here's this quote by Nora Ephron, who's a screenwriter. And check out what she says um, about New York. She says, I look out the window and I see the lights and the skyline and the people on the street rushing around looking for action. Love and the world's greatest chocolate chip cookie. Yeah. And my heart does a little dance. Isn't that true? Uh, a couple of years ago, my wife and I, we went out for an anniversary trip out to Europe for the first time for me to go to Italy. And so when we were there, I remember I'm like, oh, man, we get to eat Italian food. And uh, we, we went to a pizza shop, and I ordered uh, pizza there and ate, like took one bite into the pizza in Rome, Italy, right? The, the birthplace of, of pizza and Italian food. I remember looking at her and saying, you know, raise is a lot better than this packet. I mean, have you ever been in that situation before, right? Where you've gone outside of New York and then you're just kind of like, man, the best things are here, right? That's Nora Ephron. Check out this quote here by um, John Steinbeck, of course, an American novelist. Check out what he writes about it. I, I think this gets at some of the kind of the nitty gritty of New York. New York is an ugly city, a dirty city. Even though we love the city, we can all say that, right? Uh, it's a climate is a scandal. Its politics are used to frighten children. Its traffic is madness. The competition is murderous. But there's one thing about it. Once you've lived in New York and it has become your home, no place is good enough. Yep. For those of you guys who have lived somewhere else and then come back, you know this story, right, about how New York, there's something about this that builds a certain kind of pride for being here. Uh, I remember um, I was going to Chicago for the first time in the winter, and my wife went to university in Chicago. And so uh, I remember as I was going ready to go to travel to Chicago for a gathering of different pastors and stuff, I was getting ready and I was getting dressed for this trip to Chicago. And uh, my wife's like, hey, hey, I think you need to, I think we need to get a really, really heavy coat for you. It's like, Heavy coat? What are you talking about? She goes, you don't understand. Like, Chicago winters are brutal. Anyone from Chicago here? Wow. Uh, I did not expect that. But nonetheless, right? Like, uh, she's just like, it's brutal there. You don't understand, Drew. You're going to get sick and you're going to get cold. And I was like, Tina, who's my wife, I was like, I'm from New York. (laughs) I mean, has that moment ever happened to you where, like, someone's trying to tell you something about another city and I'm like... Are you serious? Chicago's cold? Man, I'm from New York. Um, of course, I didn't take her advice, and I got, like, deathly ill. Um, but none that, it was super cold. But I remember that experience. But I remember, it, like, just that feeling of that pride of, like, man, I'm a New Yorker. John Updike, who's uh, a long time, who was a long-time writer for The New Yorker, um, this is what he says. A true New Yorker secretly believes that people living anywhere else have to be, in some sense, kidding. I mean, isn't that true? I mean, for New Yorkers, this is what we believe about our city, that this is the best place in the entire world. I remember we were actually in Bryant Park this this week, this uh, week, and we took our kids to the carousel there on our Sabbath. And when we were there, I just remember thinking, man, we're in the heart of Manhattan, which is the heart of New York City, which is the best city 
in the United States, which is the greatest country in the world, which is the world is like the world of the universe. That means that we're right now in the center of the universe. <laughs> have you ever been there? Have you ever had those thoughts before? Okay, no one else. Um, but I mean, but I think it speaks to something that draws us and pulls us to this city. Even though we might be frustrated as ever about living here, there's something that keeps us here. There's something about New York that has this pull, this drive, this thing that gives us a lot of pride about where we live. Uh, whether we came here to make it or whether we came here because family or whether we came here for any other, other kind of reason there might be, there's something about this city that has a magnetism and a power and even an arrogance to it. And uh, I believe that today's text is a text that speaks powerfully to that same kind of feeling or posture that comes into the New Yorker's heart regularly. Um, that same kind of posture of we are at the center of the universe, which I had earlier this week, and which I dare say that for most New Yorkers, there's something about the fire and the drive of this city that gives us this sense that we are, that this is a significant place, a significant city. And that's why I think this passage is so incredible. Because in Luke, here Jesus is, he's teaching this parable. And check out what he says when he starts talking about this parable, and it's about this man. He told him this parable, which is kind of like a, a, a tale that would give a spiritual truth to it. He says, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. I mean, isn't this amazing? Isn't this the prayer of every New Yorker, right? Like that God would give an abundant harvest. And notice what the text says. The text reveals that an abundant harvest comes. It doesn't come through his own earning or potential or anything like that. It simply comes by God's grace. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said this, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. Now, in many ways, this is actually a wise move to do. And actually, in the Proverbs, it talks about storing up and saving. So this passage is not actually condemning the idea of the generating and the accumulation of wealth and the storing of wealth. It actually is getting at something different. Now, check out what it says. And I'll say to myself, and this is what it says literally in the Greek. It says, it's, he says, I'll say to my soul. He says, soul, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. In other words, soul, you are in control of your life. You are the captain of your life. You have everything you need. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Now check out kind of the punchline of this parable. Here now, Jesus says, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Now, like I mentioned, on first glance, this parable might look like it's decrying the idea of generating wealth and accumulating and storing things. But that's a biblical principle to actually do that. Instead, the punch of this parable comes in this line. And it's the line of when he says to my soul, soul, uh, uh, back in verse 19, what shall I do? I have no place to store it. And then he says, this is what I'll do. I'll tear my barns and build bigger ones. There I'll store myself. You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take it easy. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. See, what this is actually getting at, it's not a parable about the badness of money. It's the parable about the badness of the human heart. Then when the human heart becomes so engrossed with itself, it begins to think to itself that I am the captain of my own life. I am the director of my own soul. And here in this parable, this man has the audacity to somehow think 
that through his own ingenuity and power and wealth, that somehow he can manufacture his own future, his own destiny, his own purpose. And what Jesus is speaking against, again, it's not against wealth itself. What he's speaking against is this posture of this audacity, the boldness that exists within each of us at different times, no matter what your socioeconomic or racial background might be, the posture that is in each of us to at some point become the commander of my own soul, become the person who speaks to our own soul and has the audacity to say to God himself, I am the director of my own life. And this is what Jesus is trying to get at. Now, of course, it ends with this idea where it says this phrase, this is what will happen. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Now, what is Jesus saying there? He's talking about a kind of significance, a kind of richness that comes for not, again, being this person who has the audacity to simply live for myself, but someone who actually finds significant in something broader and deeper apart from themselves that has a posture of the heart and of the soul that is directed toward God. Now, isn't that astounding? So in other words, what he's saying, what Jesus is saying is that the sum of life then is not for us to be the directors of our own lives and the directors of our own souls, which is so easy for New Yorkers to believe and to think, but to actually live lives of significance that go beyond ourselves and is a life that is honoring and directed toward God. Uh, One of my favorite authors that I love to read is a Franciscan priest named Richard Rohr. And Richard Rohr, he actually wrote a book called Adam's Return. And in his book, he talks about how there are different truths that we must learn about leading lives of significance. I mean, because isn't that the goal, right? For all of us as New Yorkers, in some ways, I know this to be true, that we kind of ended up here, we're looking to live lives of significance that matter, that, that, doesn't, that goes beyond simple metrics that other people might use, but to, to live for something that truly matters. And what this parable is getting at is that death is often the thing that gives us this clarifying effect of what truly matters. I mean, has this ever happened to you where you were um, around someone that you loved who um, passed away or was on their dying bed or something or an illness kind of hit someone and it, and it just kind of clarified everything about where am I spending my time? Where am I spending my wealth? Where am I spending my energies? Have you ever been in that place before where death really does have this clarifying effect, doesn't it? It has this clarifying effect of what, are, what is the purpose of my life? What is the significance that I'm longing for? Now, Father Rohr in his book, Adam's Return, he talks about how those moments, those longings for significance can actually only be learned when we've embraced these truths, can only be learned through suffering and through rite of passages and through moments where we learn something more significant about what life is all about. And he says, whenever we go through these seasons of life, we've actually been challenged and we've gone through suffering and we've faced trial and death and liminal space is what he calls it. When we've done that, we actually begin to embrace these five truths that end up reshaping our lives so that we can truly live lives of significance. The same kind of life that I'm willing to say that you and I as New Yorkers are all longing for. So we're gonna go over those five truths today. And uh, here we go. The first truth that Father Rohr talks about that we are to learn about living a life of significance is this, is that life is hard. Can I hear you say life is hard? Turn to your neighbor and say life is hard. Yeah. 
Now, I, I know that intuitively we all know that to be true, but there's something called Facebook and Instagram and social media <laughs> that sometimes if we spend too much time on them, there's this idea that everyone's life is basically just one big highlight reel. Meanwhile, we're suffering through the mundane of life. Isn't it so easy to do that, to somehow project on other people that their lives are perfect and highlight reel worthy? And meanwhile, we live the reality of life is hard. Now, here's the thing. And you and I, we, kind of, we all know this to be true, that it doesn't actually matter how much wealth you have. It doesn't matter kind of what you have in your career or where your relationships are. At the end of the day, life is hard. Oftentimes, there's this illusion that somehow, oh, man, if I just get that promotion, oh, man, if I just reach this much net worth, oh, man, if I just get married, for all the married people, if I just become single again, no, 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 I just, <laughs> right? I mean, but isn't there this kind of thing within each of us where the grass is greener on the other side, and we somehow think there's that magic pill that once we get it, life will stop being hard, But the first truth that leads us to a life of significance is realizing life is hard. That it's a difficult journey. And that when I go through life, there is no magic pill that will somehow make life completely stress-free or easy. And it does not matter whether you get that promotion, whether you have that child, whether this thing gets covered, whatever it might be. One of the realities that we learn in life that we're supposed to embrace if we're to live lives of significance is the reality that life is hard. Uh, I know that studies and and, um, research has been done on the millennial generation and how everyone wants to live a life of significance. And the reality is, the question that's often being asked is, are we willing to pay the price for whatever that life of significance looks like? Because at the end of the day, here's a truth that is true for all of us, despite whatever your religious background might be, is that life... It's hard. It's difficult being a Mets fan. It's diffi- oh, uh, sorry, uh, it's difficult, whatever it might be, right? Life is hard. Relationships are hard. It's hard work. It takes hard work to continue to learn to love my spouse and to honor uh, her or him with great love and care and sacrifice. It's hard being a parent in this city. It's hard being someone who's generous. It's hard to really live with integrity, with my word, with my money, with my body, life is hard. And all of us at one point or another, we all experience this, whether it's through illness of someone that we love or whether it's through our own kind of illness or difficulty, life is hard. And one of the first truths that we're to to really embrace is this idea that life is hard. So you thought you were coming to a really encouraging sermon today. Uh, Just wait, here we go. Okay, here's number two. Not, Not only is life is hard, but number two, you are not important. Let me hear you say, you are not important. Okay, turn to your neighbor and say, you are not important. Can you do that real quick? Yeah, yes. You are not important. I mean, if, if life is hard and we've gone through this season of kind of understanding that I am not the captain of my own ship, I'm not the, no amount of wealth or prestige or power or you know, how great my LinkedIn profile looks or whatever else it might be. Like, at the end of the day, when it comes relative to the God of the universe, the reality is that we are 
really not that important. So you thought you'd be encouraged today. I remember when I was at, so before we started our church um, back in 2012 or our family of churches, I was part of a church staff for 10 years. So it, my industry is a pastor of a church for 10 years. It was a place where I really poured out my blood, sweat, and tears. I'd like to think. I was I sacrificed greatly for this church. I loved this community. And um, I actually didn't ever see myself leaving this church. It was actually in Queens, in Elmhurst, um, which is one of the boroughs, if you didn't know. Uh, I got to check with Manhattan people sometimes. Um, and so I was in Queens for 10 years. I lived right by the church. It was someplace that I absolutely loved. Um, but somehow, about in 2011, felt like God was calling and leading us out. We had no idea what the future held, but we just felt like my motives for staying were all wrong. Um, wasn't filled with integrity, but was more filled with just personal ambition and gain. And so as a result, I ended up resigning. And uh, it was a painful experience because all of a sudden I went from being kind of, I was a senior associate pastor at this church, fairly well-known in Queens. And I was, I, I mean, I had different pastors who were all telling me, oh man, such an incredible church that you're part of and this and that. And so I felt like I was kind of at the top of my profession, I suppose, at the age that I was at. And then I resigned and really my sense of identity was lost. Uh, people would ask me, hey, so what do you do? And I'd be like, I'm a pastor. They'd be like, where? And I'd be like, you're, why are you being so invasive, man? Just like, can't you just accept that I'm a pastor? I was so defensive about it. And so, but I remember kind of having months removed from that church and I'm, I'm going through this season of unemployment, really wrestling with my own identity. And I remember thinking back at the church that I had just left. I remember secretly thinking, man, I wish that our senior pastor and the whole elder board, I wish they would just call me and beg me to come back. Oh, that would be so awesome, you know? And uh, so I remember just kind of as I was thinking about that, um, months passed. And because, again, I'm going through this season of dislocation and really wrestling with my identity. And um, months passed. And I ran into someone who was from that church who was a good friend of ours who we just hadn't seen in months. And I remember seeing him. And I remember asking him, like, hey, oh, yeah, you know, we're catching up. And then I'm like, hey, so uh, how, how are things going at, at the church? Now, when I asked that question, I, could, I was like dying to hear what he had to say. And I was hoping, so like desperately hoping that he would say, hey, Drew, gosh, things have really fallen apart since you left, man. Like, <laughs> man, we need you back big time. Like, what, why did you leave? Like, all motives are mixed motives, but why did you leave? You were so instrumental to this whole thing going. And I remember he says to me, he goes, oh, dude, you know what's amazing? since you left, like the church has grown. Like, it's been amazing. Like God just has moved in incredible ways. People have filled in the gap where you were. It's almost like, like you were so unnecessary. Oh my goodness. I mean, I was like, I was like, oh, that's awesome. You know, I'm like celebrating inside, but inside there was this ego hit. Like, oh my gosh, like, what, what do you mean you didn't need me anymore? I mean, isn't there that craving for all of us, though, like, to somehow think of ourselves as more important than we truly are? I know that for me, whenever I, I'm reminded of that moment when, the kind of the humiliating moment, but at the same time, it was kind of this moment like, oh, yeah, actually, 
I'm, I'm not important. I'm not the key to the success of this entire church, you know. You are not important. Number three, third truth. Number three is, we're going to stop at two because this has just gotten way too, no, can we, let's see. That's right, number three, let me hear you say, you are not in control. You are not in control. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are not in control. That's right, you are not in control. I mean, isn't this one of the hardest things to really recognize? To live lives of significance, though, we need to not only understand that life is hard, not only do we have to understand that you are not important, but not only do we have to understand that you are not in control, but we also have to understand you are not in control. This is so hard for me. I'm like a spreadsheet geek. Like, I've got tons of Google Sheets floating around. I'll make Google Sheets of other Google Sheets and all this stuff. And I, I, I just love planning and knowing the future. And the people who know me or who have worked with me or who have been friends with me know I make spreadsheets for everything, vacations, etc., kids' schedules, all that stuff. I just love spreadsheets. And, and one of the reasons why is because I love planning and control and kind of knowing what's happening. And, and uh, this is one of the biggest truths truths for me to have a difficult time to accept is that I am not in control. One of the biggest, less, biggest lessons for us in that has been having children. Uh, how many parents know what I'm talking about, right? Like this idea of just not being in control. And as much as I might want to be in control, as much as I want to control whatever my kids are thinking and feeling and behaving, there's this reality that I just can't control them. And they're only like two and five. (laughs) But one of the things that we often learn through seasons of life where we learn about significance is that what we realize is that we can offer our very best, but at the end of the day, we are not in control. I'm someone who tends to get anxious a lot if I'm not in control. I don't know if you can relate to this. I think that most New Yorkers can. I was talking to my dentist the, the other day. My dentist was telling me that he, well, he told me that I'm grinding my teeth at night. And uh, I was like, no, I'm not. He says, you're sleeping. I'm like, you're right. Uh, so I realized I'm grinding my teeth at night. So he's like, you need a mouth guard. And so I've, I've started to have a mouth guard when I sleep because of, and he says, don't worry. He says, 95% of New Yorkers grind their teeth at night. I was like, really? I was like, are you sure? He goes, at least of the, the, the patients that I work with. And he said, of course, but it's because New York is so stressful and so much anxiety and people want to be in control. I said, oh. Now, if you're someone who's visiting New York or you just moved here, you'll find out. You'll find out what it's like. Uh, but, I, but, but I think that, that speaks to even my, like, oh, man, how much I need to offer before God this reality that I'm not in control. See, to live lives of significance, we need to understand that life is hard, you are not important, and that you are not in control. But fourthly, the fourth truth is this. Life is not about you. Can I hear you say, life is not about you? Now turn to your neighbor and say, life is not about you. Say, it's about the kids. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, life is not about you. I remember the first time that I was in a wedding, I was uh, invited to be a groomsman at my oldest brother's wedding. And so I grew up with three brothers 
And so the, the groomsman party was my oldest brother who was getting married. And this was my first time as a groomsman. And uh, it was a couple of mentors who was a mentor to all four of us boys that was also in the wedding party. But we were there. And so it was, my, it was one of the first times that I was actually wearing a tuxedo. I never wore it. I mean, I was high school, you know, and then college. But I just did not wear tuxedos very often. And so I was wearing a tuxedo. And I, was, I remember kind of as we're getting ready for this wedding that my older brother was getting married. Here I was, like, fixing my tuxedo. I'd keep going back to the mirror, and I'd be, like, adjusting kind of the bow tie and, you know, like, just fixing and just making sure that I looked okay. And uh, I remember one of our mentors, his name was Edwin, he came to me, and he, he just noticed that I was so fidgety and that I kept checking, like, that I looked okay and that my tuxedo was okay. And I remember he came up to me, and he said to me, he goes, hey, Drew, I just, hey, I just want to tell you, man. And again, he was a few years older than me probably had worn a tuxedo or two and he comes up to me he goes hey I just I just want you to know like um, I don't know how to tell this to you any other way but um, no one cares how you're gonna look (laughs) he's like just relax man no one's no one's and he goes you know what people aren't even gonna care how Stefan your brother your older brother looks all they care about is how the bride looks (laughs) this is this moment is not about you you can actually just chill out because it's not about you. And I remember just being like, you're right. <laughs> right? I mean, isn't that true? Like there are these moments. I mean, have you ever been in these moments where you're really anxious about something or you're really moody about something? Or even in a situation, there's all sorts of narratives that are floating around in your head and then you realize at this one moment, like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's not about me. And if you didn't think it, your spouse told you. <laughs> this is not about you. One of the truths that we're to actually truly embrace to live lives of significance is that life is not about you. It's not about me. It's about God and what God is doing. This is what it means to be rich toward God, is to be about what God wants. Life is not about me. Now, lastly, uh, the last truth is this truth. You are going to die. Can I hear you say, you are going to die? All right, turn to your neighbor and say, you are going to die. Yeah, it just keeps getting worse, doesn't it? What Father Roar talks about is that there's a reality that comes to all of us. It's this reality that no matter how much stature you might have in society, how much money you might make, how much medical advancement happens throughout the world, how incredible your following is on Instagram, how great your children and the legacy of your children might be. Ultimately, you and I going to die. There's a fate that exists for all of us. We're all going to die one day. Now, I had mentioned that this passage talks about this reality, that there comes a moment, this clarifying moment, where we begin to reprioritize whenever death comes near us. There's this reality where we begin to wonder about the bitterness that we hold against others. 
Lord, we begin to re-examine kind of the ways that we've truly loved and sacrificed for the people who are dearest to us. Lord, we begin to wonder with all the stuff that we've accumulated, how much of it has been God-honoring. See, the last truth that Richard Rohr talks about is this reality that happens whenever someone makes the passage between insignificance to truly a significant heroic life is when we've truly embraced the reality, we're going to die. Now, I know that upon first glance, we can look at this list and kind of laugh and scoff and be like, hey man, that's kind of sobering and sad and not very uplifting. Uh, our friend, he used to take these five truths and uh, he wrote them on the bib of our first child and put them on the, our first child's bib when they were infants, you know, these five truths. And I was like, don't ever do that again. Uh, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure that these five truths ring true for all of us at some point or another where we realize when we think about kind of the entire cosmos, the entire universe, entire, the entire city, isn't it true? I mean, can you imagine though that although these might look super sobering, how might it look if we truly embrace this? Do you see how when you actually begin to embrace these truths, it actually does lead us into a life of significance? Because now the trappings of all those things that hold us, the fears, the anxieties, the things that sometime take up most of our mental energy and our emotional energy, the things that oftentimes we begin to ponder over and obsess over, that when we truly embrace these things, there's a reality that on the other side, we can actually find a kind of freedom, a kind of freedom from the trappings of all the things that this city and the culture is telling us about what is significant and what can you do for your own legacy. See, what this passage speaks about is really this idea, and this is a theme of the Christian message. See, that Christians aren't actually people who never die, physically die. We're actually people who no longer fear death. We're actually people who live for something bigger and beyond this world. I mean, isn't it amazing? The Apostle Paul writes to the early church in Galatia. This is what he says. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, the Christian journey is a a journey of significance because it invites us to actually die before we die. See, but it's, it's not die so that we become this nothingness and this kind of like, this stasis kind of thing that does not grow and change and expand. It's actually you die before you die so that you can truly live. That when you die to some of the anxieties and the fears and to some of the control, when you die to the self-centered posture, when you die to the audacity of trying to speak to your own soul, when you've died to these things and when you've actually submitted them before the living God who sent his son Jesus to live and die on your behalf to set you free to give you a brand new kind of life to give you a brand new kind of freedom so that now what you live for is so different than whatever the world might assign value to 
Instead, what you live for is something of eternal significance, the lives of other people, the lives of the people that you love, the lives of the people that you don't love. That everything that you earn and build in this world is something that you live out generously, knowing that life is not about you. Do you see the freedom in that? Now, I want to mention, I know that these five truths at some level can be very uncomfortable, especially if there are people in this room who are going through intense suffering or difficulty and grievances. And I don't want to minimize that grieving at all. Instead, what I want to do is I want to, I want to invite you to come to Jesus. Find in him the kind of hopefulness, the kind of joy, the kind of comfort, kind of peace that all of us long for, despite whatever you might be going through. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna invite you to stand with me at this time. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come forward and we're gonna sing a song of response. Um, And during this time, there's people that are gonna be in the back praying. And we're also gonna, as we do every week here at LMCC, there's gonna be communion that's offered if you'd like to partake in communion. If you need prayer, if there are people in this room where anxieties have really gotten the best of you, if there are people who you're going through a situation right now where you realize there's something in your life that's bigger than you, whether it's with your children or your relationships or your work life right now, where you truly recognize, I am not God. I am not the center of the universe. God is. And today's a day where you just need to come, come clean before God and just say, yeah, God, I, I just wanna, I wanna embrace these truths that life is hard. I'm not important. Life is not about me. I'm not in control and that I am going to die. And through that though, on the other side of that, the promise of Galatians 2.20 is that I will live. I will live a life of freedom and abandon and purposefulness and significance that this world has never seen before. Let me pray for us. Father, God, I pray that you would take us off the throne of our own lives so that we might find true life. Help us to die before we die so that we might experience the fullness, the freedom, the grace that is found in living for something and someone bigger than ourselves. Thank you for Jesus who came to give us the abundant life one that is not void of suffering or difficulty, but one that is actually abundant and full. And God, with whatever we're going through, may we lay it at your feet. May we take ourselves off the throne so that you can take the throne. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.